Well, good morning. Uh, it's a, a joy to be to be with you today, uh, as we uh, are now coming to the third week in, in the Lenten season, which means we are in the third week of our sermon series on the Psalms, which is what is guiding us through this season of Lent. Um, and today we come to to Psalm 19, and uh, we've sung part of it uh, before, but uh, there's actually much, much more that, that we sung, or much, excuse me, much more than what we did sing. Um, sorry, I misspoke. Anyway, uh, but one thing that I've been uh, thinking a lot about as, as we've been reading through and studying and meditating upon the Psalms is, is just how much that I've grown to, to love the Psalms. See, one thing that I've uh, learned about myself is I am kind of the, the standard kind of left-brain thinker, uh, pretty analytical and, and linear in, in the way that I think about things and, and see the world. Um, and oftentimes, that's the way that I'll approach faith, is, is I like my doctrine and, and theology and my understanding of God to fit in a nice kind of neat little category, and everything goes in its proper place and fits in its perfect box, which makes me a really great Lutheran in that regard, because that's how we tend to like things. Neat, orderly, systematized. But the Psalms kind of invite us into a little bit different experience of faith. The, the Psalms invite us not to just think about our faith, they invite us to, to feel and experience our faith. They invite us into this picture of faith that really wrestles with God and His Word. For example, what Pastor Brad preached on last week, Psalm 22, he preached on the latter half. But if you take that psalm as a whole, you see almost what feels like a contradiction where the first half is, is this great lament to God and then it ends with just robust praise of God. And, and the Psalms invite us to, to experience faith that doesn't see it as just one or the other, lament or praise, but often lament and praise coexisting side by side. The Psalms kind of shatter our nice, neat categories and, and invite us to wrestle with God, wrestle with His Word to us. Which leads perfectly into Psalm 19, because really what Psalm 19 is all about is God's Word. It begins talking about God's Word in creation, and then it moves into speaking about God's Word that He's revealed in the Torah and in the Scriptures. We'll begin at verse 1. David writes this, he says, "...the heavens declare the glory of God." And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving His chamber. And like a strong man, runs its course with joy." Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing, nothing hidden from its heat. So David really sort of personifies creation. And he sees creation as almost telling this story, it is acting out this play, it is singing this song, and the entire song, the entire story is really about declaring one simple truth. 
the glory and majesty and goodness of God. The heavens above, the the earth beneath, it's all pointing us to the goodness of our God. The goodness of the one who created it. And certainly we are in perhaps the best place in the world to recognize that. You can't live in in Seattle and in the Pacific Northwest and, and you just simply can't help but stop and behold its grandeur. You look and you see our our city surrounded by the Olympics to the west, the Cascades to the east, the Puget Sound, Lake Washington, all of it. You just see the grandeur of creation. And David invites us to look upon these things, to look upon creation and, and see not just beauty, See not just rock formations or or interesting water. He invites us to look upon it all and see what it is intended to point to. It's intended to point us to the glory of God. Uh, A 12th century Englishman by by the name of Alexander Neckham, he writes this about creation. He says, the world is inscribed with the pen of God. For anyone who understands it, it is a work of literature. The world, the world around us, it is inscribed with the very pen of God. It's a work of literature and it's all pointing us to the one who made it. And so David sees the word of God that is written all across creation. He sees it pointing to God and his glory and his majesty. And then he moves from that Revealed, or that word that's revealed in creation, to then the word that's revealed in the scriptures. Verse 7 The law of the Lord, or the Torah of the Lord, is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. So David sees not only this word of God revealing him in creation, but the word of God written in the pages of the Torah and the scriptures. And he places great value on these words. He looks at them and he sees them and says, they revive the soul. They make wise the simple. They cause the heart to rejoice. They're more valuable than gold. They're sweeter than honey. Why? Why does David place such great value on these words? It's because the words of Scripture, they make God known. His son Solomon says in the Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom and knowledge and understanding, it all begins with knowledge of God and the fear of Him. The pages of Scripture, they're valuable. They can do what they do because they make the Creator known. And seeing the, the Word of God revealed in creation, seeing His Word revealed in Scripture, David then turns and he begins to look inward. He says then, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. 
Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David reads the word of God. The word of God in creation, the word of God in scripture. He reads it and he sees in it the glory, the majesty, the beauty of his creator. But he sees in those words also another reality. He sees in that the brokenness of himself. The sin and enslavement in his heart. And he looks upon the glory of God and it causes him to say, God, turn me from my sin. Declare me innocent from my faults. So that he can do what? So that he can take part in giving glory and praise to God. So that his words would be pleasing. So that the meditations of his heart would be pleasing. What David desires is that he would be forgiven of his sin so that he, along with creation and along with the scriptures, would take part in singing this song of the praise and glory of God. So that he can join with the scriptures in telling the story of God and his goodness. David's desire here is that he would see God's word and that it would lead him to give God his due glory and honor and praise. Which should perhaps cause each of us to ask ourselves, whose glory am I seeking? Whose glory and honor and praise am I seeking? Am I seeking to join in with creation in singing the glory and the honor of God? Am I seeking to speak along with the Scriptures the story of the God who has made us and redeemed us? Or am I seeking the glory of another? Am I seeking the praise of myself? Whose glory am I seeking? I think there's a great temptation for many of us in in various forms to seek our own glory, our own honor, our own praise. And and one thing that I found is, is that maybe I thought I would be exempt from this as a pastor and as a church worker. But that's not true. In fact, I find that, that within pastoral ministry, within church work, there's a great temptation to pretend as if I'm seeking the glory and the honor and the praise of our Creator and Redeemer, all the while really what I'm seeking is the glory and the honor and the praise of Marcus. I can't tell you, nor do I want to tell you, how many times I've I've prepared a sermon and my thought process is really more about, man, I want to be known as a great preacher. Man, I want to be known as, as a wise student of God's Word. Wow, do I want to be praised for my insight into the mysteries of God. But all hiding behind the fact that, well, I'm just trying to trying to be faithful, just trying to use my gifts, just trying to to make Jesus known. But really what I want to be known is I want to be known as Marcus. 
want to be remembered as, as a great pastor, great preacher. I want to be remembered as an entrepreneurial leader who, who took risks for the gospel. Whose glory are you seeking? Whose honor and praise are you seeking to sing? Is it the song that creation sings? Is it the story that Scripture tells, or is it a different one? Is it the song of of self-glorification, the the story of, of your work, your accomplishments? Uh, when, I, when I think of, of this path of, of self-glorification, I'm reminded of, of one of my favorite TV shows. It ended about five years ago. And it's a, a TV show by the name of, of Breaking Bad. Any, any fans out there? I'm going to give some, a, perhaps spoiler alert, um, if you haven't seen it, but it came out five years ago, so if you haven't seen it, Sorry. <laughs> But this show, it's, it's about a science teacher by the name of, of Walter White. And the science teacher, he's diagnosed with, with cancer and, and given perhaps a very short time to live and, and the treatments are going to be expensive and he's trying to figure out how am I going to leave enough money for my family to be taken care of, for, for my children to go to college. And so his way of dealing with this conundrum is he takes his knowledge of chemistry and he begins manufacturing and distributing crystal meth. And, and what you begin to see as he moves along this path from this sort of innocent, kind, quirky high school chemistry teacher toward drug kingpin is you see that this journey, it's not just about having enough money after he dies. But you begin to learn more and more that this man is filled with deep, deep regret. As he looks back at his past life and sees missed opportunity. You you learn that he was at one time a a, a really brilliant scientist who, who was working toward founding what has later become this major research company. But what he did as he saw his wife was pregnant and desired a more stable life as he left that, he sold off his opportunity there to pursue a career in education. And you see this man who's filled with with deep regret and what you begin to see is that he would rather be remembered as a bad man than to live as a good man and be forgotten. He he would rather die as someone who who was feared As someone who who maybe though crooked, maybe though wicked and evil, at least he was brilliant. And you see at the heart of all of his actions is this terror, this feeling of, of terror. Terror and fear that he will one day simply die and be forgotten. Now, I don't think there's a lot of people in this room who would go to the lengths of manufacturing drugs to be remembered. But I do think at the very core, many of us, we make many decisions, we make many choices from a place of desire to be remembered. We want to be remembered at least as maybe kind, maybe generous, 
Maybe we want to be remembered for good things. But we live in fear of going through the struggle of life only to later just be forgotten. To die as if none of it ever mattered. And so we work and we toil and we fret over how will we be remembered? Will I even be remembered? Whether it's as a, as a great preacher, whether it's being remembered for, for the things that I have, or, or the experiences that I racked up, do people look at me as a, as a person of, of adventure? Did, did I accomplish great things? Did I achieve things that, that no one else around me could? We walk this path of self-glorification because many of us, we live in fear of dying and simply being forgotten. So we do whatever we can to make sure that we live a life that will be remembered. That someone will stand up and give a beautiful eulogy for us. But you see, the reality is, is the path of of self-glorification, it's ultimately this path of of enslavement. Because we'll live our entire lives in fear of being forgotten. We'll live our entire lives filled with jealousy and envy and hatred any time we see someone who maybe does what we do a little bit better. I'll be upset every time I see someone that I think is maybe a little bit better preacher than I am. I won't praise and glory in the fact that Jesus is being made known. I'll be upset that I'm being forgotten. That I'm being cast aside. That I wasn't good enough. The path of self-glorification is is a path of never-ending enslavement. Always seeking the approval of others. You see, the path of self-glorification it also ignores, it misses, it forgets. The truth that is at the heart of the Scriptures that is even more essential than the proclaiming of the glory and majesty of God. The path of self-glorification forgets that throughout all of these pages, we discover a God who has never once forgotten us. That though the rest of the world may soon forget you, the creator of it all, the one whose glory and majesty the heavens proclaim, he has never forgotten you. That everything about this God is driven by the fact that he remembers his people. He does not forget. When they cried out in Egypt, what did he do? He heard them, He remembered them, and He rescued them. When we wandered astray, He stepped down into the mess. He came to be with us. He willingly laid aside His glory because He remembered you. We have a God who is far more concerned for His love for His creation than protecting and preserving His own glory. Right? That's at the heart of of, of. Philippians chapter 2. What does Paul say there about Jesus? says that though He was in the form of God, 
He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead, what did he do? He emptied himself. He made himself nothing. He willingly laid aside all the glory and honor that was due to him. And instead, he became a servant. He became obedient to death, and he did it all because of his love for you. The rest of the world may soon forget you. We may be tempted to go to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, but there is one who is never once forgotten. It's the one who bore the cross for you. It's the one who entered into our sin. It's the one who brings rescue. The one who went to do battle with the enemy for you. He has never once forgotten you and he never will forget you. He is with you. He is near to you. His love for you exceeds even the glory that he holds. Which means you don't have to live in self-glorification anymore. It means you're free from seeking your own glory, seeking your own honor, seeking your own praise because you already have something that is far more valuable. All of your glory, all of your honor, your worth and your value is entirely wrapped up in the simple truth that the creator of it all loves you enough that he would give himself for you. And because you don't have to seek your own glory, you don't have to seek your own honor or praise, because you no longer have to climb up and try to be like God, you can simply join in the song. You can declare with the heavens the glory and majesty of God. You can proclaim with the scriptures the word of the one who has come to redeem and rescue all things from sin. And death. Your life can be all wrapped up in giving glory and honor in whatever you do to the one who made you and the one who redeemed you. The heavens declare the glory of God. And by His grace, your life does too. Amen? Amen.